during life's most difficult and painful times. And we are, we are reminded of that all too often when we see a movie star, a rock star, who supposedly has it all, and their life sinks into depression and even suicide. Being blessed in Matthew 5 and in Psalm 1 is more than a, a shallow or fleeting uh, circumstantial feeling of happiness. This is a state of spiritual and emotional well-being in relationship to God. Uh, it's a deep-seated contentment and satisfaction which, which is enduring because it's rooted not in circumstances that kind of always change and always shift, but this kind of happiness, this kind of state of being blessed is rooted in a God who never changes. And in Psalm 1, we have two categories of people and only one of them is blessed. And there are, there are three big themes in this passage that I want us to contemplate this morning, and then afterwards I'll try to bring some, some points of application for us today. So we look at Psalm 1, and we have two people. We have two paths. And the psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives you two. He gives you only two options for life, only two ways to live. There is no third. The first thing I want us to see uh, in Psalm 1 is that delight determines destiny. Delight determines destiny. It's interesting that the psalm does not begin with a series of exhortations, a series of rules, a series of, of lists. It doesn't begin saying, well, don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. Do these things, do that, do that, do that. It doesn't, it doesn't begin that way. Instead, you have the psalm beginning with what we allow and what we don't allow to influence us. You have the counsel of the wicked on the one hand, and you have the law of the Lord on the other. And what we see in the psalm is that what you delight in, what you love, what you embrace, what you allow to shape your thinking determines your destiny. Let's read verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked, to stand in the way of sinners, to sit in the seat of mockers? When the text says that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, it means simply that he does not listen to the advice or the wisdom of the ungodly, the wisdom of the world. He's not heeding the counsel of words that do not come from God. He's not delighting in it. He's not allowing those things to shape his thinking. Now notice the downward gate in verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. Did you catch the progression there? It goes from walking, to standing, to sitting. Kind of a downward gate there, a downward progression. Now, if walking in the counsel of the wicked means listening to the advice and words and the wisdom of the ungodly uh, of the world, what does it mean to stand in the way of sinners? This is maybe a difficult one for us to think about in regards to how we use the English language. Uh, in, in our modern English vernacular, to stand in someone's way, it carries the notion of opposition or impeding somebody's progress. That's not what it means in the Hebrew text. In Hebrew, to stand in someone's way is to stand in their shoes, so to speak, to do what that person is doing, to, to walk as that person is walking. And there's a subtle implication in verse 1 that if you walk in the counsel of the wicked long enough, you end up acting wicked yourself. 
If you listen to the wisdom of the world long enough, you'll end up being like the world. And make no mistake, there is a wisdom of this world, and there is an attraction to it. The counsel of the wicked can be found everywhere that speaks to every area of life. There is worldly, unbiblical counsel on marriage, on parenting, sex, education, finances, health, psychology, and of course, religion. The world has everything to say about all of these topics. And if we listen to that counsel, if we walk in the counsel of the wicked long enough, it's going to seem very attractive, very good, and very wise and sensible. And God's ways are going to seem backwards, old-fashioned, antiquated, and not for our own good. Remember when the, the serpent tempted Eve in the garden to eat from the tree that God told her not to eat from? What was the counsel of the wicked in that instance? Do you remember what the serpent said? He said, you shall not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will become gods yourselves. God's ways are holding you back from something great, and you must break free from those shackles. And what happened after that? Well, the Bible tells us, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The longer she entertained ungodly counsel, the longer she turned it over in her head and in her mind, as she considered it and chewed on it, the better it looked, the better it sounded, the more of a delight these seductive words of the serpent were. And as she allowed those words to shape her thinking, she moved from walking in the counsel of the wicked to actually standing in the way of sinners. The counsel of the wicked tells us that the gospel is foolish and that the cross is foolish. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians. He says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And we even have churches today that are drifting away from the cross and the core of the gospel message because they have listened to the drumbeat of the world for so long. It's not, just, it's not sophisticated to believe in such things anymore. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Hey, he's, just, he's alive in our hearts. There are churches that say these things. Where did they get it from? The churches did not get it from the word of the Lord. They, they got this counsel of the wicked from the wicked. And they have let their, their, their thinking be shaped by such counsel. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure that we can think of times where we too, in our own lives, have listened to messages from the world and have found them attractive and wise and something to delight ourselves in. Messages from our favorite TV shows. Messages from sitcoms. Messages from Oprah. Messages from right-wing talk radio. Messages from left-wing talk radio. And we've heard certain ungodly and unbiblical messages over and over and over and over again. We listen to the counsel of the wicked so much and for so long, we end up standing in their way. Walking in their way and not God's. And the danger is going from listening to the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of sinners. And eventually, if that goes on long enough, you find yourself sitting in the seat of mockers. And you get this image of these high and lofty elite people perched up on this 
pedestal, looking down their noses at the unwashed masses, looking down at those ignorant, intolerant, fundamentalist, narrow-minded Christians. But where does that downward spiral begin? It begins with what is shaping your thinking. Walking in the counsel of the wicked. And the righteous man, the blessed man, the happy man here in Psalm 1, avoids having his thinking shaped by the counsel of the wicked. He does not delight in these things. The counsel of the wicked always steers away from the word of God. The counsel of the wicked always holds out the promise for life, for happiness, and for peace outside of God's word. You see, ground, where is ground zero in spiritual warfare? Ground zero in spiritual warfare and the battle for our souls has everything to do with the voices and the counsel we are listening to and has everything to do with which word we believe because as a man thinks in his heart, the scripture says, so is he. Ground zero is the mind. Uh, The scriptures often call it the heart. This is exactly why the Bible is always interested in peeling away this this outward veneer of godliness and really just getting down to the nitty-gritty. What's in our hearts? What's in our minds? What's in our thinking? This is why the Bible is so concerned with what influences our thinking. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, talking about spiritual warfare, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. This is exactly why from the very beginning, the primary way that the devil attacks people is through undermining the counsel of God. Through contradicting the counsel of God, through getting us us, uh, to in our minds... And in our thinking, reject God's word and embrace another word. I'm kind of hearing a rumbling sound through the speakers. I'm not sure what that, what that is or if you guys hear it or not. You, you do? Okay. We'll fight through it. Genesis 2, God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. The serpent says in Genesis 3, now it's not going to happen. You'll become like God's. Exodus 20, God says to Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And while Moses is on the mountain receiving the word, the Israelites make a golden calf and say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. God the Father declares from heaven about Jesus, This is my son. And right after that, the devil comes to Jesus and says, If you are the son of God, Matthew 16, Jesus talks about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, and Peter rebukes Jesus and says this will never happen, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. The counsel of the wicked is constantly speaking voices to us, and we must always be on guard against such messages, lest we find ourselves sitting in the seat of scoffers. But the blessed man doesn't just reject the counsel of the wicked. The godly man here in Psalm 1 is not just described in negative terms by what he does not do. He's also described in, very, in, in positive terms by what he does do. And it is interesting what the psalmist says about him. 
The psalmist does not say, well, the blessed man rejects all the rotten things in verse 1, and as an alternative, the righteous man goes to church, he gives his money to the poor, he prays three times a day, he fasts twice a week, he goes on mission trips, he preaches from the pulpit, he does all of these things. That's not what he says. You know why? Because all of those outward things and those religious things can be done without delight. You can do all of those things and still be wicked. It is delight that determines destiny. And the psalmist cuts to the heart of the matter in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is significant. Because we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked because we're forced to. We don't stand in the way of sinners because uh, we're just reluctantly willing ourselves to do it. Oh, I've got to sin. I've got to, got to do that. No one sits in the seat of mockers out of duty. We do these things because we want to. Because we like it. We like to sin. Did I say that in church? I guess I just did. We like to sin. But listen... I know there's some exceptions. Sometimes I've sinned out of ignorance. But come on. Let's be realistic. I know for me, I don't know about you guys, but most of the time when I sin, 99.9% of the time, it is because I want to. I get some kind of fleshly pleasure out of it. The pleasure will be different depending on what sin it is, but there's always some kind of kickback in it for me, which is why I do it in the first place. This is why we sin. And we, and we want to do these things because we have been watching the world so intently that what they do is now attractive to us. We have meditated on them, on the things of the world, on what the worldly are doing. We don't call it meditation, but that's what we're doing is we intently look at it, stare at it, turn it over our minds, consider it, and now we delight in them. That is how worldliness happens. You start by looking at the stuff the world produces. And you look at it and you think about it so much that you want it. And so you walk and stand and sit in their council and their way and then you take their seat. Now if that's true, if that's what we're up against, do you really think that if you're just religious, if you just grin and bear it and stick it out by, by the sheer force and tenacity uh, of, your, of, your, uh, of your strength and your will, that you're going to be able to successfully fight against the pleasures of the world? Is that, is that going to work? How long is that going to work? A couple days? Maybe for you, for me, maybe a couple hours. Now the psalmist cuts to the heart of the matter. The truly happy person, the truly blessed man is walking down a different path, a different road because the pleasures of the word are superior to the pleasures of the world. This man is not just forcing himself to do devotions every day because it's something he has to do. This man actually delights in the law of the Lord. And there is a sweet delight to immersing yourself in the word of God. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now how do we get to this point where we view the Bible, the Word of God, in this way? I think one way is through meditation. The psalmist says this man not only delights in the law of the Lord, but he is meditating on it day and night. 
And just like the pleasures of the world are awakened in our hearts by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the Word are awakened in the believer by looking at them long enough, day and night. What is meditation in the biblical sense? It's not the same as in Eastern religions. It's not the same as in in the New Age sense of when they talk about meditation. It's not about emptying your mind. It's not about sitting under a lotus tree somewhere and saying, um, that's kind of a, not kind of, it is an unbiblical view of what meditation is. Meditation, biblically, is not the emptying of your mind. It's not the reduction of mental activity. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. You are filling your mind with something. You are filling your mind with the Word of God. Now, how many times have you opened up your Bible, and you've read a verse, and you've closed it, and you have no idea what you just read? You can't remember. Okay, I guess I'm the only one that that happens to. I've heard stories that that happens to other people. Sometimes. That's not meditation. You've got to meditate on the Word of God. You've got to turn it over and over and over again in your brain. You you think about it throughout the day. You contemplate how it applies to your life, to your relationships, to your money. When your boss yells at you. When the kids let you down. When your spouse disappoints you. Instead of filling your head with the counsel of the, of the wicked from TV, radio, magazines, whatever. And you are now intently thinking about the law of the Lord. It is an active thing mentally. That's biblical meditation, and that's what the blessed man is doing in Psalm 1. Now, in addition to meditation, though, we, we need supernatural help. Come on, guys. We need supernatural help to really delight in the law of the Lord. I mean, naturally... Naturally, I do delight in Super Bowls. I delight in laptop computers. I delight in sin. Okay? My heart naturally gravitates towards those things. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't take any work to do that at all. But we need supernatural help to really delight in the Bible, to delight in God's Word. We constantly battle our sinful tendencies, and because we are sinners, we don't naturally love the Bible. We don't naturally delight in the Word. We naturally feel the pull of the counsel of the wicked. So I think a part of delighting in the Bible and the, and the law of the Lord is asking God to help us to delight in it. To, to, to help us to crave it, to develop spiritual taste buds for the Word of God. I love the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119. He says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist there is recognizing that he needs supernatural help. He needs God to open his eyes to help him to see the great and wonderful and exciting things that are in God's law. And I need that same help too. And so do you. Two more themes. These two are shorter than the first one, so don't get scared. But the second theme, uh, the, the first one, the light determines destiny. The second thing, the life of the godly is fruitful. The life of the godly is fruitful. I love this description, this metaphoric description of the blessed man in verse 3. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In uh, Israel, 
there are lots of streams that are dry beds in the summer. And you have the early rains come, and life just springs up everywhere, even in the desert. You've got covered plants everywhere. It's wonderful. And then the rains disappear, and to all appearances, everything dies. Uh, it's, there's nothing there. It's barren. It's much like the southwestern U.S. Some of you are from that area, I believe. Southwestern U.S. Well, you guys are from Arizona. You know what that's all about. And uh, in Israel, these dry, barren places are called wadis. And then later on in the year, the second rains come, and then everything grows again. But in the summer, nothing grows in these dry wadis. But this tree in Psalm 1 has been carefully and intentionally planted. Well, it didn't plant itself. It's been planted intentionally, not in a dry wadi, but at a nexus of different streams all coming together in one place. Therefore, there's always a water supply for this tree. And for that reason, we see in verse 3 that the leaves of this tree do not wither. There are always signs of life. And regardless of the weather, regardless of the conditions, even when other plants and trees around it may be dying and withering, this tree continues to flourish because it has a constant supply of life-giving water. The blessed man, the righteous man in Psalm 1 is compared to such a tree. Whatever he does, prospers. Now this is not referring to some sort of health and wealth, false prosperity gospel that you see on TV. This is metaphorical language that's speaking of enduring, flourishing, growing. You see similar language in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, it's interesting, uh, this contrast using plants. I'll read it to you. Then says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, like, like a wadi, in an inhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, prosperity preachers may use this kind of language, uh, may take this type of language and, and say that, well, this means that those who follow God will get a whole lot of money and a big house and a big car and yada, yada, yada. But really, these tree metaphors in Psalm 1 and in Jeremiah 17 speak of something much better than those things. Much better. It shows us that the righteous man will grow and flourish and have his needs met and bear fruit to bless others. The reason a tree bears fruit is to benefit others. He's got, those things are going to happen even in difficult times, even when the heat comes. Even when drought comes, even in a bad economy, even when you have cancer, even when you have lost someone dear to you, these things will not destroy you. Even then, you will grow and flourish and bear fruit to bless others. As I was thinking about this tree metaphor in Psalm 1, um, this image of a tree by a nexus of streams never withering and prospering in all it does, it reminded me of Horatio Spafford who in 1870 lost his only son to scarlet fever. In 1871, he incurred financial ruin because of the Great Chicago Fire. And in 1873, he lost all four of his daughters in a horrifying shipwreck, hammer blow after hammer blow after hammer blow on his life. 
And most of you know the story. But in the wake of that horrible tragedy, Horatio wrote the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I love the first lines of that hymn that says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That is prospering. That is flourishing. That is growing. Some say a million dollars is prospering. Nah, that is prospering. That's what I want. To have such a confidence and delight and love of God that even after those terrible things happen, he could say with peace and confidence, it is well still with my soul. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The person who delights in the word of God and meditates on it day and night speaks like the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, where it says, Though the fig tree do not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's prospering. That's the state of the blessed man who belongs to God. Delight determines destiny. The life of the godly is fruitful. And the third thing, the life of the wicked is wasted. Sad verse, sad words in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? I had a teacher speak on this once who grew up in the West. He said, he said this, I, I, do, I do not think city folks understand chaff. In Montana, every fall we had harvesters who came around with a thrashing rig the bundles of wheat would be thrown into this machine, the straw would be blown out onto the stack, and the wheat would come dribbling out to be poured into trucks or wagons and taken away to the granary. But floating around in the air everywhere was chaff. It was the awfulest stuff you ever saw. It stuck to the skin wherever you were sweating. On the back of your neck and down your shirt, it created a frightful itching. It was universally regarded as totally worthless. The only thing they could think of to do with chaff was to let the wind blow it away. And that's what God compares the wicked to. That's the true nature of the ungodly life. No value. No lasting contribution. The godly enjoy meaning and fulfillment, deep roots, rich fruit, but not so the wicked. They're blown away like dust. And it's not just that the wicked will perish. Uh, throughout the psalm, we, we've had this comparison between the blessed man and the wicked man, but at the end of the, of the psalm, strictly speaking, it talks about the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Look at it, at the end of the psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That is such a haunting verse. It's not just that the wicked perish, but their way, their patterns of life, all that they deem significant, all that establishes their identity, it all passes away. That is so haunting. 
This week I was contemplating all that men do, all that men strive for. I thought of the most powerful and influential men in history who shaped the course of world events and the earth trembled before them. Kings and emperors and generals and rich people and presidents and mighty men. And yet for those who did not delight in the Lord, and most of them didn't, everything that they built, everything that they worked hard for, everything that they accomplished, everything that they had poured their lives into, perished will have no significance. It's all a waste. Do you think 100 billion years from now, in the new heavens and in the new earth, we're going to spend much time thinking about the things of Napoleon, the activities of Adolf Hitler, or Osama bin Laden, and yet every cup of cold water given in the Lord's name and done for his glory will be celebrated. And there are millions of people today. They are not dictators. They are not world leaders. Some of them may be even here this morning. They're not on the path of the righteous, the way of the righteous. They're pouring their lives into building their own little kingdoms, getting a nice house and a car and a dog and 2.5 kids and the white picket fits, and they're living the American dream. And they are rejecting Christ all the while. And they get to enjoy their little kingdom for what? 30 years? 40 years, and then that's it. Time's up. It all perishes. Everything they did, everything they sacrificed for, everything they accomplished, it's like tracks on the beach here today, and then the tide rolls in, and the tide rolls out. It's all gone. No trace of anything to be found. It's like those tracks never existed. The way of the wicked will perish. It's a life wasted. I was thinking about a great song from Casting Crowns called American Dream. Love this song. Love the words in the song. But in the chorus, uh, they say, because he works all day and tries to sleep at night. He says things will get better, better in time. So he works and he builds with his own two hands. And he pours all he has in a castle made with sand. But the wind and the rain are coming crashing in. Time will tell just how long his kingdom stands. And that really just sums up the American dream. We pour our lives into sandcastles that will be destroyed in two hours, and we have nothing to show for it. It is time for us to wake up from the American dream. Get off the path of the wicked and pour ourselves in our lives into the only thing that's going to last forever, God and his glory. Anything less amounts to a wasted life. The way of the wicked will perish And the wicked will not stand in the judgment, you see in verse 5, which means the wicked will not go to heaven, which means their destiny is eternal destruction in hell. And why? Well, go all the way back up to verse 1 and become full circle, because they walked in the counsel of the wicked. It all starts with what you listen to and who you believe. The light determines destiny. There are only two ways to live. But there's one little problem. Verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So only the righteous in the end will survive judgment. Who's righteous? You righteous? As I was reading Psalm 1 about the blessed man, I was thinking to, I was trying to put myself in that role. I was thinking of myself as the blessed man. I was thinking about us here at Harbin's, the Christians, the believers, as the blessed ones. But you know what? As I meditated on Psalm 1, I began to feel a little bit of despair. 
Because I haven't done Psalm 1 perfectly. And don't get me wrong, I believe there is personal application for everyone in this room regarding how we're supposed to live our lives. We are to strive to be Psalm 1 people. What we've been reading about this morning, that's the goal. That's the bullseye. That's the center that you and I need to be aiming for every day. But you know what? I've missed that mark. And so have you. In fact, that's what sin means, to miss the mark. I can't live, I can't perfectly live out Psalm 1. I can't do this. I've walked in the counsel of the wicked. I, me, the preacher here on stage, I've stood in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of mockers. I have not always delighted in the law of the Lord. I don't always meditate on it day and night. And so then the next natural question would be, is my end destruction too? The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You know who the Bible says is righteous? Psalm 14. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Psalm 130 says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, iniquities is sin. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's a rhetorical question. None! That puts us in a pretty hopeless position, doesn't it? But right after that, right after he asked the question, who could stand? Do you know what the psalmist says? He says, but with you, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Bible teaches that no man is righteous except one. There is one truly blessed man who totally fulfills Psalm 1. There is only one man who lives Psalm 1 perfectly. This man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In fact, when the serpent came to him and told him to turn stones into bread, he told the serpent, he didn't respond as Adam and Eve did, he told the serpent, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know why he said that? Because his delight was in the law of the Lord. This man totally delights and loves the law of the Lord. In fact, this man doesn't just love the Word of God. He is the Word of God. John 1.1 This man, this man is like a tree whose leaf never withers. And all that he does will prosper. And on this man, Isaiah tells us, the Lord has laid on this man the iniquity, the sins of us all. We all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as God laid the sins of the world on Jesus, God laid the righteousness of Jesus on all who trust Him. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There was an exchange. My sin for His righteousness. And then with my sin on Jesus... God the Father punished Jesus like he would have punished me. He treated him as a sinner. And after the wrath of God was satisfied, the author of Hebrews tells us that he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all, the, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And finally, Colossians 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when did you die? You died when you put your faith in Christ. Faith is the instrument that unites you to Christ. And when you're united to Christ, his death becomes your death. So you don't have to die for your sins anymore. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. So you, unlike the wicked, will stand and not perish. And because your life is hidden with Christ and you're in Christ, you are now blessed, as it mentions in Psalm 1. Psalm 32 says, blessed, there's that word again, blessed. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There are only two ways to live. And the two ways come down to this. Will you walk through your life on your own and pay for your own sins in hell forever? Or will you trust and receive Christ and let his righteousness become yours? We don't have to despair when we're faced with the recognition that we can't do Psalm 1. It's already been done for us. Christ's perfection is applied to those who never lived up to God's perfect standard for wretched sinners like me. And because Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the Psalm 1 man, everything he does will prosper and last forever, including your salvation. In closing, God is in the business of taking sinners like you, like me, wicked rebels who are on a path to destruction, making us righteous in Christ, plucking us off that path, and placing us on the other path. And if you have received Christ, he will empower you to live out Psalm 1. You will still battle with sin. You will still sometimes stumble and fall. But God will not leave you in your sin. He has planted you by streams of water, and he will make you grow and flourish and prosper until that day comes where you will grow up to full maturity, to a state of sinless perfection and perfect unending joy in the new heavens and the new earth in the next age to the glory of God the Father. And you will be truly blessed. There are only two ways to live. And the Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to God except through me. There are two ways to live. There's only one way to life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that even though we have not done Psalm 1 perfectly, oh, we've fallen so short of that. Thank you so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners like me and like my friends here. So that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. God, I pray that you would hide this word that we have read in our hearts this morning, so that we may not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just respond to the word of God. I sing, O God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you.